Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Ryan Koppelman. Thanks for listening. So, look, there, there is one guest when they write the story of The Moment. Uh, there's one <laughs> guest. There's one guest who's been on the most um, and is the most requested guest. And um, as you know, if you've been listening to the show, um, the last few weeks have been best ofs, and I intentionally didn't put a best of of Seth up because I wanted to have him back um, and as a treat to everybody, but mostly to myself because- And me. There's almost nobody in the world really that I enjoy talking to um, more than Seth Godin. It is such a privilege. And you know, there's nothing for me that I like better than being able to sit with someone who is one of my closest friends and someone I just admire so much. And I learn something every single time we talk and um, so, Seth, I know how busy you are today and how much you have going on. Thanks for coming here and doing this. I've been this. looking forward to it. I need to poke a little beef here because it's been nine months. Someone could have a baby in the amount of time it's been since I've been here. Just I was saying, looking at it. It needs to be a little bit more frequent. It's supposed that. to be at least twice, should be three times a year. Yeah. I agree. Ideally, we would do this once a month in some way. We'll figure it out. We have to. Drip by drip. All right, so, well, you know what, though? Yes, it's been nine months, but then online is a conversation the two of us had at a conference somewhere. Oh, that's true. So we got one in there. I guess we did one that wasn't here, right. that does exist somewhere, so that's why it's, it's not... new to you, it's still new. Right, right. you know, in a way. Um, here's where I want to start, and then we can ramble along As and we get do. to various yeah. things, right? First, can you just talk, because you never... Uh, I. I, you are so scrupulous about never, not promoting, but talking about your own stuff. Could you just give a couple minutes on what you're really excited about that you're doing right now? I just want to share that with people because I hear about it at dinner, but but at dinner, there's no microphone. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, we're doing much lonelier work than when you sell a book to a million people because I'm trying to change the way people learn, adults learn about how they're going to do better. And so I think education is busted and I think learning is more important. So the Akimbo workshops, we have several running right now, one on bootstrapping. We're launching the marketing seminar again next week. The Alt-MBA continues. So these are intensive workshops. But what I am learning firsthand is how lonely the journey is through the chasm to go from the original froth of, oh, I'll, it's new, I'll try it, to the other side where it's actually popular, not because it works, but because the word has spread. And so we are committed to chopping that wood and carrying that water to get to the next circle of people who want to wait until they see that it's working. And now we're up to 20,000 people in the community, so it's working. Is it? Is it... What's your self-talk like? Because, you know, your foundational story of so much... Right struggle when you knew but what's the self-talk like as i mean even for you to say something like it's lonely work that's relatable but it's not something we hear from you that often well yeah because i try to be completely candid when i'm with you yes um, meaning that um there aren't people who say books are never going to work because books have worked it's 500 years when you're on the, a technological frontier or a pedagogical frontier, people who aren't ready to say yes have to be skeptical about it. And their skepticism doesn't come in the form of, well, I'm not the kind of person that likes to go first. It comes in the form of, 
it has this defect. It doesn't come in brown. I need it in this. And so you have to figure out who to listen to and who not to listen to and how to put on the soft tissue stuff that you know you don't need huh. because they need it. The soft tissue stuff. Yes. That'd be a great blog for you. Done. I'm ready. You got to do right the now. soft tissue stuff blog. Okay. That has to happen because you're exactly, you're exactly right. I wonder how much of it has to do with the fact that for most of us, the great majority of us, formal, formalized learning was primarily one of two things, painful or boring. Yeah, horrible. And the fact that that's the case means that education, um, when it's disguised as entertainment or when it's an incredibly famous person for a short burst like yep. in Masterclass, it feels fun. And if we learn something, that's a great benefit. Exactly. Mostly, isn't it like, oh, wow, look at that. That's Anthony Hopkins talking about acting. Right. Or that's Daniel Agrano, two hours talking about poker. But like the two hours that someone watches Daniel Agrano, like I got play poker with a guy who's clearly watched that two-hour <laughs> seminar a bunch of times. And it is like getting a yellow belt in karate, sadly. <laughs> like, it will just get you hurt. Yeah. Now, Daniel's a genius. If you could spend yeah. four hours... Um, a day for a, a day month. for a month with Daniel Negreanu, right. you would win in my poker game all the time. Right. But, so, what is that... How? I guess what I'm interested in, Seth, is how do you change what is... Um, I think the scholastic experience, like, you know how people become depressed in, in September? Right. It's not just the weather, right? It's right. because it's within their bodies. Exactly. The Proustian thing runs so deep in so many parts of our lives, right? We smell something and it takes yes. us back to our childhood. So placebos work for a whole bunch of reasons. One of the reasons is that, for f that filling a prescription starts to make you feel better because in the past it has been associated with it. So here, if you believe that doing the minimum, asking will it be on the test, wondering how to get an A, figuring out what the certificate is worth. If that is all of your response to education, then it's going to be a long time before you take one of our workshops. And we decided to be resolute in the face of that, to not pander, to not use the other way around to trick people into it because I need enrollment, actual enrollment from people who say, oh, I get it. Yeah, that is the journey I want to go on. Because the thing about education is education is about compliance. It is coercing people into doing something they don't want to do so they get a piece of paper later. And online, it's very difficult to coerce people because they can leave. The typical online course has a 95% dropout rate. 95% of the people don't finish even a master class, 95%. Because as soon as it gets hard, it means you feel incompetent. As soon as you feel incompetent, you quit. And if you don't have enrollment, you can't deliver. What, what is the word? What does syncretic mean? Syncretic. Yeah. That's, I could spell Am it. Am I making I it up? No, it's S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-C. We, can't we do that thing where you yell to the person in the booth and they tell you what it means? Well, it's a fusion of different religions, cultures, and philosophies and it does seem like, like your syncretic approach to all this stuff makes it not that simple for someone to understand because you are not sugarcoating it right you're not saying this is a get blank quick plan exactly it it's much more of a syncretic plan 
You're yeah, and it's, it's, it also has to do with expectations. And I know that that's something that you and I have been talking about because what we have done in our culture is trained people to average down from hype. So if you look at your Google News Feeder, every headline makes it sound like the world is about to end or you're going to discover the secret of the universe because they know that we're going to grade it on a curve. And if you want to be a worthy creator, and I think that's what you and Dave have done with so much of your work, is you're not overhyping. You're saying this is what it is and people are thrilled when it's even better than that. Averaging down from, from, from hype is... It's one of those sad things that as you grow up, it's one of the, you know, we talk about how being childish is never good, but being childlike is very good. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, we learn to, temp- you know, there's this great moment in, in Salinger's um, Franny and Zoe when uh, a guy's waiting for the woman he loves to get off a train and Salinger shows him, and, and you're supposed to understand this character's limitations, he, he shows the character wipe the smile off his face because he doesn't want to show how beautifully in love he is. Right. And it's this great moment of what happens, what we confuse for adulthood. Right. What we confuse for growth is actually a sign of the end of growth sometimes, right? Yeah. And And you're trying to reverse that, And we strip it away so early, like sea monkeys are a really useful tool at one level. Because they train a four-year-old to never believe in advertisement ever again. But on the other hand, it's impossible to buy sea monkeys and then be happy when they get there. So you start becoming bitter at the age of four. And because I've been a marketer my whole life, proud of it, it's that balance of will you pander? Will you give people what they want at a, at a primitive level? Because you could sell it right now because it's short term and it's a hit. Versus will you do the thing you and they will both be proud that you did, which is not about selling sea monkeys, that sea monkeys didn't make the world better. Well, this, is, this goes back to you know, a book that I think is going to live long after both of us are gone, um, despite the fact that you live and eat so healthily and everything. But um, it's probably won't live forever. But I think The Dip will live on forever. You're a great book. And... It's funny, I, as you know, every year I, I have everybody in the writer's room read the book and you come talk to us and you get this question all the time, which, which is, why'd you leave out the chapter? It's the best, people always say it's the best book, the most useful book I've ever read, but you left out the chapter with the answer. And sometimes you'll say, well, I can't answer that for you. You'll say a bunch of stuff. But there's something beyond that, isn't there, about your hope that people will just do the work on their own. Your your real mission, it it's seems to me. Hope. It's the actual practice of the book working will only happen if I don't write that chapter. Go deeper on that. Well, so, you know, a lot of... Explain what it is and... Sure. So there are plenty of people in my life who either have written books or are writing books and ask me for insight, and I'm happy to offer it to them. And their editors keep wanting everything to be on the button, on the nose, be super obvious. And then the headlines, the covers are like, how to do this in four easy steps, right? Catcher in the rye. What's the catcher? What's the rye? It doesn't matter. Catcher in the rye is not about catchers in rye. It's about the journey of Holden Caulfield. There's elegance to it. And completing the synapses is how we learn something. 
So The Dip is a book about quitting, and basically it argues that there's two kinds of challenges in our lives. One kind of challenge, the dip, the moment we feel like quitting, matters because it's that dip that made the thing worth doing in the first place. If everyone could do it, it wouldn't be worth anything. When you hit one of those dips, you need to stick it out, and you need to know it's coming. The other kind of challenge we have is a dead end where there's no way through that you are hoping to be able to fly just by flapping your arms. No one ever has. No one ever will. Don't waste any time. Quit now and go to do something important. And people say, well, how am I supposed to tell the difference between the two? Because when you're in it, they feel the same, right? And if I just said, here are the 18 bullet points and the six steps and three stories, you wouldn't be any closer to have, learning, to have learned the own voice in your head to distinguish between the two. And... Distinguishing between the two is the essential part of growing up into becoming this kind of creator, this kind of um, uh, engagement, because if you don't, if you're just looking for the cliff notes, you're never going to have it innately. So I'm fascinated by this, right? This question of, um, of how much we can calculate on the, uh, the work we do and when we should, right? I'm... Uh, pretty anti the idea of calculating or uh, uh, expressing it that way. What's fascinating is as a marketer, you know just what to have done with the dip. To, even though it's a book that's an evergreen, you know just what you could have done with it to actually make it a really big deal when it came out. And yet you could have written that chapter with the 18 bullet points. So that tension right. that exists between the side of you that is messianic about your work and wants everyone to engage with it, when it competes with the side of you that's actually the main, your main purpose, knowing you as I do, which is to actually affect change, how does that wrestling match happen? How do you grip, put your arms around that wrestling match? Well, the first thing I'll say is what we call that difference is good taste. Sure. And it keeps changing in our culture, but people with good taste are the ones who don't pander to the 11th degree, right? We're used to experiencing the carnival huckster because that person has bad taste. Now, I don't actually do the calculus the way you're describing. That part, I don't have words for when I'm doing it. You're just going to write the book. I just have a, a, a structure in my head about what I think this feels like. You know, uh, our garbage disposal broke two days ago, and I Googled how to fix it, and you need a quarter-inch bent long Allen wrench. And I have a set of Allen wrenches in my basement. And I went down, and I picked it up, and I was able to fix it in like 30 seconds. It made me very, very happy. And the thing is, when you hold this Allen wrench, which costs 50 cents more than a regular Allen wrench in your hand— it's right. Yes. This is what an Allen wrench is supposed this. to feel like. I love like. this. And that's, with every piece of my work, what I am trying to do. And it's going to be different every time because I'm not repeating myself. Like there was a 15-year period when Workman Publishing was just totally on a streak. I always wanted to publish a book with them. And their books had the same typeface and the same French rules. There was a method. There was a manual. And, you know, Charles, the guy who pioneered the cover, was brilliant, but he didn't have to do every cover because it was a manual. That's not sufficient. You need to have something that when a new thing shows up, you know what that's supposed to feel like. So I knew before I had my podcast what I wanted my podcast to sound Akimbo, like. Akimbo, which is a great podcast. Thank yes. you. And, and 
the same thing true with these workshops. When we started the first Akimbo workshops, they didn't quite feel right to me, but I didn't know why. And so we've evolved them 20 times in now, and they're starting to feel more like they are supposed to feel. I don't know the answer. I just know the practice of doing it, watching the interaction, that is an art, and I think you only can get it by practicing the same way you don't have to scan many pages of a screenplay to know if it's going to be a good movie. Yes, but the the instinct, there are times in anyone who's a creator, and I want to talk about the word artist, but I, we don't have to get caught up in that this second. Um, it's clear you're not calculating when you're creating the work, but then there's a moment when the work's created where one can doctor the work. Yep. Absolutely. And where one can tailor the work to a market. Right. And then one has to make a decision right. about what that work is for. Exactly. Them design, or me. Design thinking kicks in. Yes. Because them and me is not my analysis. It's What's your analysis? Them or the other them. There's many thems. Go further. Okay. So if, all, if it's just for me, I don't want anyone to read it. I wrote it for me. My guess is I wrote it or created it because there's someone I have in mind who I'm trying to change. So design thinking is who's it for, what's it for? What change do I seek to make in who? So when I'm on stage giving a talk, uh, and I'm lucky, I sometimes have, it, there have been 100,000 people in the audience who I know who they are. They told me there's going to be these 100,000 people. What change am I seeking to make? Well, that wasn't up to me. That was up to the organizer. So am I going to go into a deep dive masterclass on one little nuanced thing that's going to require a large enrollment? No. I need to bring my best tested, funniest slides because that's what the audience is there for. So you get to pick your audience. That's the essence of design. Start with who is it for. And so if I am building something for just 100,000 humans on Earth, I'm going to write it differently or create it differently than if my publisher says, I need this to reach the largest possible audience. And I will never reach a huge audience. That's fine. But pick your audience first is essential. And so I know you love Mad Men and The Sopranos. Most people have never seen either one of them. And that's why they're great TV shows. Right. We've, and they can have the cultural impact without people seeing them. With, right. right, without most people seeing them. Right. Even if 10 million people watch or 20 million people or like, you know, it's still, there's this great but amount the, of the people. The question is, should, should David Chase, that's his name, right? Should he be disappointed because more people have engaged with the Kardashians than with him? I think the answer is no, he should not because pick your audience pick your work. So how do you think about someone's at home and they're thinking about creating something and they're on their journey? Do you think that this is the best time ever? I know I know we both sort of think so. There are still intermediaries. And there are still intermediaries who are not using the kind of design thinking you're talking about. There are intermediaries right. who want it to be for everybody. Yep. And the intermediaries can be crushing. So how does one think about bypassing the intermediaries or uh, enlisting the intermediaries or, or when to listen to the intermediaries? Like how do people negotiate with that, do you think? Okay, so let's put a pin in – I really want to come back to this. I want to say one thing first because you inspired something that I um, just videotaped the other day for a course. There's amateurs and there's professionals. Yes. Being an amateur is thrilling – it's magical. It means you are doing the work for the journey and 
you are not compromising to do the work in your mind. A professional has skill, but a professional does their work whether or not they feel like it. That if you need your appendix out, I hope your surgeon is a professional because if she had a fight with her spouse in the morning, you still want her to do great work. But then there's a third category, and the third category needs to be brought up before we talk about this intermediary thing. The third category is a hack. I'm so glad you drew that distinction. Yes. Now, hack comes from the borough of Hackney in London where there used to be a meadow. And in that meadow, they raised horses. But they didn't care very much about the horses. They were just working grade horses for working grade people. They were the cheapest, most easily available horse. That's where the idea of calling a taxi driver a hack came from. And so the idea of a hack is a hack is a professional who doesn't care. And a hack is a professional with a short-term point of view. So if you want to be a hack, you will be more famous than Brian or Seth. And if you want to be a hack and you're good at it, you will make more money. But you will not be a professional because a professional cares and they evoke that caring by having good taste. They evoke that caring by changing things in a way that they are proud of. So now we come back to this idea of who are the intermediaries yes. and which ones do we work with? Because if you want to be a professional, you're going to make compromises because what it means to be a professional is to show up even if you don't feel like it and to have the marketplace transact with you. But you can't go too far because then you become a hack. So you have to pick the intermediary that you are proud to work with. And the intermediary who can see you. Right. And recognize Because if the intermediary says, no, you've, gotten, you've accomplished nothing. Yes. But a professional has to know it may take a long time to find the right intermediary. Oh, it's, it's one of the hardest parts. And so what happened is the gatekeepers have left many parts of the building. So you and I both know if someone wants to make an eight-minute movie on their phone and post it on YouTube, it can be done in an hour. Done. No one can say no. And when you do that, now you have to own the fact that you're an artist. And the reason that so few people relatively have done it is it's fun to talk about being an artist, but it's really scary to be one. Yes, because the word, I mean, even when you're saying professional kind of scrupulously saying professional instead of artist. Right. Because artist is low. We've loaded the word so much. Exactly. Uh, some people feel like it's, they're pretending to something if they call themselves an artist. Right. Or that means if they call themselves the artist and they, an artist and they make compromises, they're a hack. Exactly. They're not a, prof they're not a real artist. Correct. And I'm saying if you believe that, you should be an amateur. And I applaud you for being an amateur artist. But then don't wonder why, you're saying, but then don't wonder why exactly. you're working alone and exactly. without connection. Don't quit your day job, right? Don't There's, quit your day job either way, by the way, well, I but, would suggest but, but until... for 5,000 years, human beings were amateur artists. The thought that you would get paid to paint a painting, tell a joke, write a novel, impossible. You were delusional. It only happened in the last 120 years that that was possible well, with writers, longer unless, with writers. Unless you knew the Pope. And painters, yeah. Right? Right. But, yeah, yeah. Right? I, yes, in most of the world. On a percentage For most of history. Nothing. Yes, of course. So we're headed back in that direction. We're headed back in that direction because gatekeepers create scarcity. Scarcity creates value. Value can be shared with the creator of the work. But if there is no gatekeeper, very little value is created because there's no scarcity because there's so many other things I can watch that don't have commercials. So I'll just click over here, whatever. And 
if you want to be a pro, what it means is to say, I have good enough taste to cater to my market, but I am not a hack chasing a market that's too big for the work I want to make. This makes me think of a couple different things, and I want to circle back to your own journey because it, it's relevant. Um, but I was thinking about two people who've been on the podcast, uh, Anthony Mangieri and Nicholas Morgenstern, yep. who are both professionals of the highest order, but who, who are so rigorous on themselves and whose mm-hmm. desire to compromise is so, on their art is so small that it creates so much pressure on them. Yeah. And it's such a thin... There's such a So we need to invite them both in here so we can talk fairly, but here's what I think. They're both geniuses they're at they're what they geniuses do. They're both geniuses what they do, but they both compromised early and often. For example, Nicholas does not have a $10 million nitrogen dispensing blah, 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 nor his own herd of cattle out front, because that would be impossible, right? That Anthony does not have... Uh, an acre of wheat growing in the backyard that would be impossible so they're already compromised which is you're saying you're saying so that they shouldn't be afraid of further compromise well, i'm saying their fuel is to refuse whatever the last five percent is that's what fuels their forward motion is whatever the last five percent of the market demands the last five percent of the gatekeepers demand the last five percent that investors demand refuse to go there because that's a bright line for them. It's something to lean against. But Yes, but what I'm asking is, so I've eaten a lot of pizza. You're a professional. I'm a professional pizza eater, right? Anthony Mangieri makes better pizza than anybody else by an, a factor. Yes, for sure. And it's the hardest factor. Right, the last zero is the, the last zero. One. The, the, the thing that separates Anthony, and look, there may be people, like how you know this is true is there may be people who want to say, well, wait, Chris in Arizona is just, like right. there may be five people we could be talking right. about, but there aren't 20 people. No, they're unreasonable. Both, I know both of them. They're both unreasonable. Right. And, then, and the unreason, this is, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, so the unreasonableness, which makes what they do. Exactly, it's the fuel. So incredibly good. right. How do you balance that? How would you, if you're advising, let's say, not that somebody, right. how, how do you think about, man, I, I don't want my pizza to be less amazing, but I want a life. Right. And that tension, sometimes to me, seems unsolvable. Oh, I don't think it's unsolvable. I think it's this magical problem that makes life interesting, which is that everyone's already compromising. That's not the question. The question is, What's the trade-off? What's more important to you? Where are you headed with this or that? That what it means to be Roberta's is, I'm guessing, he took some investor money because now there's more than one Roberta's in there in my grocer's freezer, right? But on the other hand, he gets to employ more chefs and therefore gets to spread his standards to more people. All of this are a series of compromises in the spirit of the balance between good taste and being a hack. And it's all on a spectrum. Right, and these two guys are so far from being hacks. They're so far from being hacks that they're they're questioning for themselves, how can I continue to be a professional? And I'm saying, you already decided where to be on the spectrum. So don't be disappointed that the rest of the world doesn't get the joke. You set out to do this work. This is what the work And then you should be happy in that place. Yeah, I mean, happy Uh, is your narrative matching your expectations. Sure. Right? Yes. And so what's going on here is 
you have come up with a new way, a better way, a more unreasonable way to make a product, to write yes. a screenplay, to shoot a movie. And if you want to be productive at it, you're going to have to compromise something else. Maybe you're going to have to compromise how many outlets you have. Maybe you're going to have to compromise how many special effects are in your movie. Because if you're willing to make movies without special effects, you can make a lot more movies per dollar. But So this comes back to you, to your own personal question, uh-huh. which is you're running this new approach to helping people make these changes. Right. It's really hard. You have a big audience who want, are positioned and want to buy into whatever it is that you're selling. Uh-huh. You make the choice not to really sell to all of them. Correct. You are making a different choice. In your own way, you're as uncompromising as Nicholas and Anthony because you want the thing that you, you – there are lines for yourself – Bells and whistles you don't want to deploy. There, there are lines. I think the difference is I am uh, willingly compromising, but I'm doing it with my eyes open. And what I'm saying is what it means to make change in the world is to willingly and willfully inflict tension. That people don't like change, don't want change, and no one will ever applaud change unanimously. So when you show up, for example, if you're uh, Porsche and you come out with your new electric car, you have created tension because if someone has the old Porsche, you've just made their old Porsche obsolete. You made those people unhappy in the service of selling them the new one. You've made your comp- tension, tension, tension. So I am willingly and willfully saying to the group of people I get to whisper to, guess what? There are only two kinds of people in the world. People who have been through one of our workshops and people who haven't. Here it is. Take it if you want it. I knew that doing that would create some tension. And I knew that for some people, that tension would make them walk away. For some people, they could live with the tension. And for some people, they would say, I'm willing to engage and enroll in this journey because I don't want to live with that tension of knowing I could learn more. And so what the mistake a hack makes is they hate tension. They're trying to make tension go away. They can't live with any tension that lasts more than a minute. Right. And what it means to grow up as a creator is to say, I'm okay with it taking longer than that. Well, this goes to this question of expectation. So often you and I end up talking about Dylan and Miles Davis because they... Did you see the new movie? St- yes. So they stand in for a kind of artistic excellence and a kind of uncompromising artistic excellence. Yep. And we can talk about talent versus creation. No, but we're I don't not want to that anymore. No, I'm not interested. We're I, I'm done not interested that. Listen to episodes two, three. And four. <laughs> no, but I want to come to. But but but. Um, I got a good bit about Miles Davis. But you go ahead. Go, you talk. I have a very specific question. I will get to. But go. Okay, so Miles makes the single best-selling jazz record of all time, and kind kind of blue, kind of blue, and uh, it's a miracle. No one expects that something like that could happen to any jazz musician, and it happens to him. And then he gets lots of things that he wants. He gets, you know, photo shoots. He gets to date a man, marry a supermodel, blah, 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 blah. And then it starts eating at him, which is, wait a minute. These kids are going to rock concerts. Wait a minute. Life is passing me by. Wait a minute. Can't you see that I am? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Because his expectation was reset. So then he makes a record called Bitches Brew. And I don't know about you, but compared to Kind of Blue, Bitches Brew is unlistenable. 
there is no comparison between those two records. I, it's like my favorite Miles Davis record. Okay. This is which is no great. But for, but, but if I, you, I understand if you, if you get jazz from the fifties, but here's the punchline. Bitches brew outsold kind of blue. Now, I'm not sure that Miles made it because he had that noise in his head. Because from what I could tell from the documentary, that's not why he made it. I haven't, oh, made, I haven't watched that documentary yet. He, it came out last, I watched last week. The, I know. The, I thought you were talking about the Dylan documentary, no. which I did the, watch, the, the Scorsese the Dylan from so a So Miles ago. is like, how do I reverse engineer a record for that audience? Back to what I was saying a few minutes ago. You pick your audience, you make your product. And I think that if you had said to Miles on his deathbed, what record represents Miles Davis, I don't think he would have picked Bitches Brew, but maybe he would have. But my point is still, pick your audience, pick your product. Well, yeah, Bitches Brew is a really controversial record because it does exactly what you're talking about. It creates that tension. If yes. you look at it, right? yeah. Bitches Brew, and this is worth talking about, even if you're not a jazz person, I'm not, Seth knows a lot about jazz and is I'm... You know a lot. I, about I know everything. a lot about jazz, but not in the way. I'm not. A, it's not my main, th- you know, thing musically. But "Bitches Brew" is a record that polarized. Yeah. In a way, kind of blue didn't polarize. That's absolutely correct. And Miles was willing right. to say, "I don't care what you because yes, he might have gotten caught up in the expectations game, but his strength as an artist or one of them. Correct. We agree. Was he didn't pick c- your audience. Make your right. art. I'm saying, and well, yeah. because he was an artist, he made the right art for that That's what audience. I'm saying. He also didn't care about if you were a Miles Davis fan Screw and you. had already bought in yeah. and you expected Birth of Cool. You expected right. a, one of the – a bebop. If you expected a hard bop record, right. guess what? You're not getting a hard bop record. Correct. Uh, and I don't care about – and I'm not doing it because you ex- – I don't care. That kind of training. So Dylan, the documentary on Dylan is so much about – Dylan was in a box. He was, con- people genuinely thought he was God walking among men. Not like where they're right there or clapped them, but, but Bob Dylan was a prophet to people. Sure. They really believed that it, he was a yep. prophet. And he had to make a choice. Exactly. Most people would lean into the opportunity to be a God. Bob Dylan realized to save himself, yep. he had to stop singing the melodies of his songs in concert if he didn't feel like it. Yep. He had to... He in order to continue audience. to grow, he, he, he had to say, whatever expectation you come in with actually is none of my business. That's what Dylan yeah, said. I don't way, care that about That was how he expressed his choice to pick his audience. He said, I want you to enroll in the journey that when you show up, I am going to be performing what I have in mind, not being a cover version of myself. Not what you have in mind. Yeah. Do you think you have to be uh, an established person to do that? How can a, a younger or, or an artist who hasn't yet achieved that's, that stuff get themselves, or creator, artist is a word I like because I think all of us when we're working at our sure. most creative, alive place are artists or have the capacity to be artists. And I want us to take that word back and not be scared of that word. But the power in not caring about expectations, and look, you think about when you're going to write a book. I think about it with a new season. It's like, how do you divorce yourself from caring about what people expect from you? That could be your parents who want you to go to med school. Right. How do you think, how do we talk about this to ourselves so that we can do the work we want to do without feeling burdened by these expectations? 
I would say that successful artists and creators consistently pick an audience that gives them the freedom to do the work they want to do. So if you don't want to be a doctor and your parents want you to be doctors and you decide your parents are your audience, you're going to be unhappy on the journey. You're going to be unhappy when you pick something else if you still think they're your audience. Right. Oh, this is deep and And, really important. And so Devo, let's think about, you know. Mark Mothersburg. Right. At their peak was a cover band of Devo because they made a joke. People got the joke. The people who got the joke wanted to hear the joke again. And if you wanted to go on a creative journey, you need a different audience. You need an audience that wants you to do a different joke every single time you show up. Yeah, they might be giants. Never, they never became as big as Devo. Exactly. Because they actually, but they could still play and their people come. For sure. They were never a primetime band. Right. But they kept going on the journey. And what is said to have destroyed the ethos of the Grateful Dead is when they finally had a top 40 record. Because when they finally had a top 40 record, the people who started coming to the concerts came to get high and to party, not because they were part of the family. So this is really important. What you said about the parents, I want to go, I want to take it one notch further. Because there's two different ways you could choose them as your, audi- as your audience, right? Right. You could decide, they want me to be a doctor, I'm going to be a doctor. Then you're actually pleasing your audience, but you're miserable. Correct. You're a hack. But you could also choose to do something else, but still consider them the people that you're playing for, in which case your audience will be miserable and you'll be miserable if you still measure yourself by their reaction. And this is the philosophical life lesson that has nothing to do with playing music. That's right. If you set your expectations and you choose your audience and they are consistent with the narrative you have about who you seek to become, your life is 100 times better than if you have intentionally, because it's always intentional, chosen a different audience or different expectations that don't match where you're going. I mean, this is in a way... So, so this is the thing about, about you, Seth, is that one of my favorite things in the world is when I bring you into a situation and then you leave and go about your day and people come up to me and they say, he's as magical as I... As you said that he was going to, I don't understand. How is this guy actually? And I say like, well, I choose my friends really carefully. Like if I spend this much time with somebody. But but anytime I put you in a situation, people walk away just absolutely gobsmacked by how integrated you are with who you say you are and with what you do. Which is to say you've done a very good job at picking your audience and serving that audience. And when I hear from people in general... We are, most of us are worse at that. And, 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 and you, you may be magical now, but you weren't, you weren't born uh, where you just instantly, it all came easily to you. So uh, how did you, and I know we, talk, we talked about, you know, I understand what happened to you in college when you decided, okay, I, I'm going to make a certain kind of shift. But most people... You know, someone you and I both know very well is still haunted by whether her father thinks uh, she's a good person, right? And it's two people you and I both know well have that. <laughs> Maybe uh, more than two. But it, certainly two that I'm, I think that both of us can conjure. So many people, they have this thing they want to do, they feel a certain way, and they just look around at the people they've decided are the judges and the juries. Yep. 
And it just makes them feel bad yeah. all the time. And it makes them trudge their way. Because you don't have to trudge your way to an office. You could skip your way to an office. But it makes them trudge their way exactly. to their office. So how did you start talking to yourself about this? And and have you found a way to get to, to explain to people that they can... Uh, it's the Victor Frankl thing, that, that, that they can actually change the narrative. Okay, so first, I got to tell this story to get it off my brain. Uh, the day I decided that David Chang was on his way, I may have mentioned this before, we used to go to Momofuku on Saturdays at lunch. Noodle bar, the original one, yeah. When he, that was all he had. Right. And I don't eat meat. I haven't had meat in 30 or 40 right. years. And they had a Brussels sprouts dish with bacon. And we would say, sitting at the counter, can you make that for us without bacon? And they would. And then... On the 18th time we went, when they still needed our business, I ordered it and they said, I'm sorry, we can't. I said, but I'm just asking you to not use more of your ingredients. You're making it fresh. No, we'd rather not have vegetarians come here. There's one dish on the menu for you. That's it. And in that moment, I was sorry that I couldn't go back there, but I was also thrilled that this person had chosen to stand for something. Now, to answer your question... I'm terrible at this. I'm just better at it than some people. And I'm well aware of both parts of that sentence, right? That I beat myself up almost every single day about something that has to do with picking the wrong audience or setting the wrong expectations. But I've developed a habit to catch myself, to not marinate in it. And so I feel comfortable talking about it, not because I'm perfect, I'm far from it, but I know the feeling. I had the feeling an hour ago. And... You just can discuss. Well, the the last part of the riff is, I used to have this horrible crackling in my ears back when we uh, lived in the NYU dorm, and finally I went to the uh, specialty hospital in New York that does nothing but crackling in ears, the ear, nose, and throat, whatever people, and they listened to me and I made the crackling and they said, "What do you have to do to make the crackling?" And I moved my jaw. They said, "Take some Sudafed every day for five days." And so I slept. It was horrible. I don't like Sudafed. And I went back after five days, and the crackling was mostly gone. They said, all right, let's see what happens. Five days later, it came back, because it's an allergy thing. And I wasn't prepared to keep taking Sudafed. And so then a new doctor comes in, and I tell him the whole story, and he says, so the crackling happens every time you move your jaw? I say, yeah. He says, stop moving your jaw. And the fact is, I just made the crackling happen again for the first time in months, because I, yeah, it's still, but most days, I don't move my jaw. And then the crackling doesn't happen. So if this crackling of picking the wrong audience is bothering you, stop picking the wrong audience. It's not complicated. It's just hard. It's days, right? It's actually the number. Uh, you just have to keep doing it. It never goes uh, away. Because I, I think a lot about why people are, again, we've talked about blockages. But, uh, but I think a lot about why people either buy into the narrative that those exist or have them. And one of the reasons is because instead of allowing them to hear their own voice, they're hearing someone else's voice. Exactly. They're hearing their father's voice, their mother's voice, their cousin's voice, the popular kid in school's voice, the girl who wouldn't and go the out voice with them, the boy who rejected them. And the voice is very disguising that it's not your voice. It pretends to be your voice. Right. It's your father's voice, your mother's voice in your vernacular. Exactly. And so training yourself to... N- not care for me, I always say train yourself for a couple hours a day to not care about it. What did you do though to not care about what the other kids at school thought of you? What the what did what was it that allowed 
Seth Godin to decide to blaze his own trail? Well, I mean, I think my habit was to nurse it and to make it stronger, to remind me. So I can tell the story of Milton Glaser kicking me out of his design class. What do you mean to nurse it? Well, so like, how many times have I told myself the story of Milton Glaser kicking me out of his design class? I'll show him, blah, blah, blah. And then there came a time when I realized that these stories I was nursing weren't making me better or happier. And so I hear myself and telling the story. And instead I say to myself, oh, that was funny. And now I can turn it into a funny story, not a nursing of grievances story. And then eventually they extinguish. And then you don't have to tell the story again. Right. Then it's dead to you. You change it. Right. You, cha- you take the narrative that you're the, the, the record that's spinning. You play it one last time for yourself. Then you decide you're going to scratch it in some way. You're going to change it yeah. in some way. And then eventually you say it doesn't serve me. Right. Anymore. I mean, I think that if the people at Momofuku said, you're a bad person because you're a vegetarian, that would not have been helpful to them. But if they can say, I'm sorry, it's not for you. What's wrong with that, right? That I'm a comic telling jokes in English. You speak Italian. It's not your fault you don't get my joke. It's not my fault you don't get my joke. You're just speaking a different language than me. Let's be friends. Thanks for coming, but I don't tell jokes in Italian. And to take that example further, what we're talking about is if you know that your work isn't going to be for everyone, and it can't be, correct? then what you have to tell yourself as people are saying no or telling you that you're crazy is, I haven't yet found the people that it's for. And if no one has ever found people that it's for, now you're simply hiding. Go further. Because, yes, someone is going to invent a new art form. Someone is going to invent a new medium. It's probably not going to be you. So follow in someone's footsteps. Because if there has been someone before you who has made an impact with the acoustic guitar, then we know it is possible. I would say this. Follow in someone's footsteps. So you know this is actually at the core of just one of the small ways we see this. This is like right at that same core issue. but, But it's actually I just saw the light in the way that it's not different. Uh, if you are the kind of person who's actually going to blaze the trail in a totally new way, an actually new way, yep. you're not going to be worried about getting the little approvals along the way. Like, well, if you are really one of the, right, change your, if you're, if the truth is you suddenly understand how to make a new kind of music that nobody's recognized as music, you already, and you're really the person who's going to do that, you're actually not listening to us talk about how to know whether you're crazy or not. You're on a journey where you know you might be Maybe. crazy and I, you're going to... I've, I've met enough unaware, unself-aware creators that I'm not sure I'm going to give you that one. But if you had said to me when I met you, my goal is to change the culture with an outdoor repertory theater that's only going to be in Iowa, yes. I would say, has anyone ever come close to doing that? Because your expectations might be mismatched. You said you wanted to change the culture. If, on the other hand, you say, I have a partner, we have typewriters, and we know how to deal with people in Hollywood and New York who have carriage and, a, and spectrum, 
I say, yeah, there's been a thousand people before you in their own way who have done that. Yes, go do that. Right, but if but Jeff Bezos said, I'm going to take over the world with a bookstore. Nobody yeah. had ever done that before. Jeff Bezos did not say that. And this is really important. I'm going to make a bookstore that's going to be the um, – that that is going to be the Trojan horse for it's really, taking over okay. the universe. The form – of Jeff Bezos' approach, first of all, was straight up the middle of the alley of Mary Meeker will write something nice about me. I will get a meeting on Sand Hill Road. The place I used to work, D.E. Shaw, is one of the richest people in the world. I know how to put money to work to build a company that will grow. Right? He didn't say, I will code the, everything on this site by myself and we will never grow to more than three people. That would have been delusional. He knew exactly how to build an organism that would self-heal and self-cycle in the space where he was. He knew, for example, if you look up Amazon.toast, you will read about what happened to Amazon in 2000. He knew how exactly how to get so close to zero that he was almost out of the game but had enough wind in his sails to get to the next level. So Jeff isn't perfect, but Jeff was very good at creating this forward ratchet. On the other hand, just a couple years before that, this guy came to see me at Spinnaker Software and he said he had this device that you could put on your head and control an Atari video game using brainwaves, right? And that he had raised a little bit of money. This is an exact quote. We use it at home all the time. And he's going to use it to buy one ad on the Cosby show. And that ad is going <laughs> to cut through the market like a hot knife through butter, like a thresher through a wheat field, he says. His voice <laughs> getting louder and louder to sell this device. And I said, you know... There's just a significant mismatch between how you think the genre works and how it does work. And that's my argument, is that we, we don't have to be a hack when it comes to genre, but we must see it, we must recognize it, we must use it to our own ends to find the audience we but, seek to But serve. even if it's not most likely going to be you, Mark Andreessen did figure out I'm going to organize the internet in, I'm going to come up with a browser, something mm -hmm. called a browser. I'm going to come up with a graphical, now there was, there was a graphical interface on computers, right? Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and whoever the design guys were came up with a graphical interface mm -hmm. for the computer. No one had done that before, but there was a thing called a computer, and I guess in your language, they were making a computer better, right? And you're, to take the language where they weren't going into an entirely new thing, they were just going to make a a more user-friendly No, we computer. needed Mark to do what he did. But Mark, and if Mark hadn't done it, someone would have done it six weeks later. But we needed Mark to do what he did, for sure. But I'm saying that He's wasn't something that had listening. been... listening. The That's next the Mark is not listening. Right. Right? That's that right. You and I, between us, interact with one to two million people every day, between email and everything yeah. else. Of that group, there aren't any Marks, or it's a rounding error. We are here to serve folks, and I am one of those yes. folks. Right? I have yes. invented a slew of stuff in my career. I have not invented anything like what uh, Doug K did with the, with the graphical user interface. No, permission marketing was a good thing, but if I hadn't invented permission marketing, somebody else would have a week later. And so this is not about that. This is about the craft of being a working professional creator and doing it with joy because you're making the culture better in a way you're proud of. Do you still find it scary ever yourself to do the work? Yeah, only on days when I'm working hard. On days when I'm being lazy, it's not scary at all. But when it's lazy, you're annoyed with yourself. Yeah, because I'm not really doing the work. And how do you kick yourself into gear? Because I remind myself that I'm living on borrowed time and I don't want to waste it. And you think about legacy? No. 
I think about what the people I teach will teach other people, but I don't want to be known for what they teach other people. I want them to be known for what they teach other people. If I could do this all anonymously, I would prefer that. What do you mean? I mean... You mean I, the brand of being Seth yeah, that's a doesn't matter to it's you? It's a convenient tool to earn trust to help me reach the audience. But I went when I was a book packager, I went to Random House and I said, look, I have to hustle every time to sell you a book. You're sending me this much money. Send me less. Just give me the job to make the work. And I will just have a little cube here and I'll make four times as many books because I just want to make it. You worry about that stuff. I don't want to have to go do all the uncertain parts because I'm good at inventing and making. And they looked at me and they said, we don't do that. Right. And for you, the hard thing, because when you said lazy, I just thought about how you're one of the least lazy people I know, right? Even when you're making dinner, you're working all day at it. So I'm trying to translate that in a way that I understand. The, when you talk about the difficult work or the hard work, you're, you're talking about work that you know has meaning, right? Work that, that might change, not work that might not work. That, uh, an approach that might fail in service of changing something, changing somebody. I'll read a blog post that I've got in the queue, and I, I'll say, that'll work. Ah. That wasn't hard. Right? I know how to rhyme. I know how to sound like me. That's not hard work anymore. But then I'll read a blog post, and I'll say, whoa, that's really – I know exactly which people that's going to rub the wrong way. And I'm not sure I want to, and I have a folder of hundreds that I haven't published because I don't care enough to put myself at that much risk to be in that space. How are you not showing me those and asking me? I don't even understand. Because I wouldn't listen How to what you said. How are you not? You would once in a while. No, I wouldn't. You would once in a while. You're good at goading me. If you me, showed, it oh, then, then, oh, so this is easy. If that's true that you wouldn't listen... Then I should have them in my inbox by this afternoon. You know I won't. You know I won't ever show them to anybody, right? I mean, is it true that you know I won't distribute them without your permission? Yes. So yes. then, if you showed me, yeah, and especially if my saying this, this is one's about really the good, this part of it isn't broken. What I know how to cajole myself into doing more difficult work. Yes, you do. And as I get older, it's harder, but that's part of why it's a privilege to do it, because when I was more desperate. It was easier to do difficult work because I had less to lose. Who should engage with you th through Alt-NBA and the bootstrapper thing? Like some people can engage with you through your books, and that's great. Some people can engage with you through your podcast appearances, through your speaking engagements, all that stuff, right? Through the blog. Everyone should engage with you through the blog. I will say that I, when I go places, um, your blog comes up in the strangest places all the time. People talk about the value that it 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 has in their lives. But who should be engaging with you in these other ways? So here's the, the Alt-MBA is taken by people who part of their narrative is there has to be more than this. That they go to work or they're in an engagement with an individual and they say to themselves, there has to be more than this. And we help them understand that there is more than this and level up. The other workshops are strategic in the sense that if you want to build a podcast or you want to bootstrap your business, or you want to market we say the best way to do it is to do it, but you need a safe place. You need to be surrounded by six or eight people, and you need to shift the work daily. And the new one I'm working on about creativity is exactly that. And 
if you can find that on your own, you don't need my help. I hope you'll just keep doing it. But if you can't find it on your own, and we found so many people who are disconnected, if you do it with us for a month or two months, I know not only will you be better at it, but you are more likely to ship the work because you have been shipping the work in this safe place. Those are the people we want. Some of them have fancy jobs, senior vice presidents. Some of them, 80-year-old women in the Isle of Man. And we just graduated a 16-year-old woman from the Alt-MBA. She's amazing. But it's not because they get to talk to me. They don't. It's because they get to talk to each other and do it in a place where they're challenged, where there's tension, and where it's safe all at once. And where can they find that? Uh, Akimbo.com. A-K-I-M-B-O dot C-O-M. So go to Akimbo.com. Listen to the podcast. Uh, akimbo which is uh, not this it's by that's set. at akimbo.link but once you start buying domains you can't stop yeah get all the akimbo stuff happening read Seth's blog every day it will make you think read the book The Dip even though the ultimate final answer <laughs> ask Brian about the last chapter is uh, yeah you can just ask me what you should do in fact yeah just write me and just ask <laughs> quit or no and I'll just answer randomly and then if you listen um, I won't take any credit or any blame Seth Godin you are just so fun. What I got to say, jewel. this might have been our, one of our top seven episodes. <laughs> totally. I'm, I'm, I'm ranking it totally no in the top seven. It. Seth Godin, thanks a lot. Hey, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter.com. You can email me themomentbk at gmail.com. You can find Seth at sethgodin.com. And um, that's it, folks. See you soon. Go make a ruckus. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>